Hey, everybody. This is Harvey Slogo Wasserman back with the uh, 150 plus um, uh, Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom call, the GREEP, uh, or GREEGREE uh, if you're in New Orleans. Uh, we have an amazing lineup today, of course, and just the world is in total chaos, and we are trying to make sense of it and trying to make it make sense. We're going to lead off with the fabulous, uh, legendary Andrea Miller, who's going to give us an incredible basic overview of grassroots organizing as it needs to be done, as it will be done, uh, uh, at least through the 2024 election. This is our major uh, work to uh, uh, succeed in, in moving our, our organizing to on a grassroots basis that makes sense and is absolutely effective. And no one has done that better than Andrea Miller. We're hoping also to be um, uh, joined by Ray uh, McClendon in, um, in Atlanta. Uh, who's uh, the godfather there of the uh, Georgia miracle. And uh, we want to combine over the next coming weeks, we want to combine their genius into a uh, template document that we can uh, circulate and uh, and get to the world and uh, and turn this country in a grassroots direction. Uh, we are then going to be joined uh, with Steve Caruso um, and, and Wendy, I, Ray has just joined us, uh, with uh, reports from Ohio, and uh, and Florida, this they what's going on in those two states fits fits in the you can't make this up stuff up category, um, and uh, the battle for democracy is just uh, full bore in both those places. Uh, it's amazing. I was thinking about this. It's amazing that we have, of our of our four people core here. Uh, we have Wendy in Ohio in uh, Florida and uh, and Steve in Ohio, which are really at the heart uh, of the whole national struggle for. Uh, to sustain some kind of democracy um, in this in this country, uh, we're then going to go to Vinny De Stefano um, out in California, uh, uh, where I am. Despite the Central Ohio uh, scenario scene behind me, um, uh, Vinny's going to update us on on the um, Julian Assange case and other struggles uh, for democracy in the second hour. We have a state senator from uh, Maryland uh, who's going to talk about his bill to uh, save the earth, um, uh, an anti-global boiling. It's no longer global warming, it's global boiling. Um, and, uh, his legislation in Maryland and the movement there for safe energy. We're going to also be joined by uh, Robert Freeling um, uh, in California, who is a real, real deep expert on the uh, the green power situation in California and the progress of renewable energy, which is now facing very serious opposition from our so-called liberal governor and uh, the uh, reactionary utility companies in the state that are trying to keep the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant running. Um, uh, I guess they want to see uh, what will happen when an earthquake uh, uh, turns a nuclear power plant to rubble. Um, and we're going to try and stop them. The Mothers for Peace are in court, and hopefully we'll have a report uh, along with Robert from the from the Mothers for Peace, because that, that fight is uh, day by day, week by week. We are in federal court, and I believe uh, that uh, they will definitely shut uh, Diablo Canyon Union 1 tomorrow, if they haven't already, to start the 50-day refueling process, and that's what we really have to stop uh, to keep them from... Uh, uh, continuing to operate those two reactors, which is absolutely criminally insane. So that's an overview. I'm sure there'll be uh, a wonderful twists and turns as there always are. 
as we move ahead. We've got 31 people with us to start. And uh, the most importantly of all, we have the great Andrea Miller, who's joined by Rafe uh, McClendon. Uh, Andrea's in Virginia, and Ray is in Atlanta. And Andrea is going to present us, as she did last Thursday. And uh, Andrea, spare no detail at this point, uh, if you can, with her, her spectacular uh, grassroots organizing overview. And uh, then Ray, who is the godfather of the Georgia miracle, will uh, chime in and will have laid out a really definitive um, uh, template for moving ahead with grassroots organizing uh, 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 in, the, in the years to come. So, Andrea, um, uh, the floor is yours, um, and uh, as is the video, and we look forward to your fantastic pres uh, presentation. Thank you. Did we lose, Andrea? I think we lost her, Harvey. Oh, well, we've got Ray. <laughs> um, uh, that's, that's a kick in the head. Andrea was with us before, so hopefully she'll get back on as soon as possible. Um, uh, Ray, do you want to give us some of the basics of the grassroots organizing? Oh, wait, she's returning here. Um, let's see if Andrea's with us. And um, uh, Ray, you're with us, right? Ray yes, McClendon? Okay. Um, Andrea, you're back. Okay. Uh, are you still with us, Andrea? Did we, no, there you go. All right. So, Andrea, if you will start, please, with your magnificent presentation of the overview on the grassroots organizing that you do and that we're going to try and spread. Again, we're nonpartisan. This is a get out the vote, protect the vote. Um, build democracy centers movement that is at the core of American democracy. Uh, so, Andrea, if you'll take it away, please. Hi, Harvey. Hello, all you wonderful great folks. I'm Andrea Miller, and I live in Virginia, which right now is the center of the universe because all 140 seats in the Virginia General Assembly are up or election on November 7th. Now, for those of you who may not know anything about Virginia, we are the, uh, or are the former capital of the Confederacy that was Richmond, Virginia. However, in 2020, we gave up that distinction. Um, and in the 2021 legislative session, Virginia became the most progressive Southern state. We have our own version of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, and we have 45 days of early voting. So what we do over here at Center for Common Ground on our 501 C3 side is we turn out the BIPOC vote, the Black vote, Hispanic vote, AANH, PEI vote. And we do that by making sure our voters have the information they need to vote. Now, the political parties, the campaigns, they want to do television ads, spend millions of dollars on those ads, and then flash up a sign that says, vote on November 7th. Well, why are you telling me to vote on November 7th when I can actually go down and vote today? So one of the things that we make a point of doing is we make sure that 
in our phone banks, in our tax banks, and even on our postcards, that our voters know where they can go and early vote. When they go to the state website and they only give the election offices in many of our large counties, there are a number of other places you can vote, probably closer to where people live. So we built a tool where they can go to that tool and I am typing and dropping it into the chat and they can get a list of every early voting location in the entire Commonwealth. Um, Me, like everybody else, we are getting older, so much better than the alternative. My big concern in this upcoming election is many of our Black and Hispanic voters over the age of 65 no longer drive. And nobody ever said Virginia was a little Chicago or a little New York. That means there really is no public transportation here. So we are dredging off our get a ride tool and we are getting ready to provide rides to the polls and make sure we are covering senior apartment complexes, senior centers, and wherever we can find a group of seniors, especially if they're in many of our ex-urban counties, because where the voter registrar's office is and where people live, there can be miles in between. And we want to get our voters of color out early. We want them to beat the Confederates that we know will show up at every Black voting precinct on election day, attempting to harass and intimidate voters. So that's basically where we are in Virginia. Early voting turnout looks really, really great in the district where we have done work, postcarding, phone banking. Early voting numbers tend to be in the toilet in a lot of our Northern Virginia districts where the candidates there are being very traditional about getting their voters out on election day. Since some of them are running unopposed, I'm not really worried about what they're doing. My concern is very much with voters in places like Suffolk, in Emporia, and in many of our smaller cities that are basically surrounded by rural counties. So thank you all. I'm going to drop the link in the chat. We need people on the phones. We would love for you to volunteer to make phone calls for us. We would love, uh, postcarding is over. So the main thing that you can do is make phone calls. We do phone bank training and you'll love our phone banks. We don't use dialers, they're very, very easy. You'll love our instructors. Our instructors are very, very patient. 
our phone banks run seven days a week, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. And we leave messages. So it's not like when you call a voter, if they're not home, they never get the information. You'll also be interested to know our voters call us back many times to thank us for giving them the information. And the really sad part in all of this, we've been doing this since 2016, and we are still hearing from a lot of the Black voters that we call that we are the first phone call they've gotten about these upcoming elections. And unfortunately, we may very well be the last. So thank you. Thank you. Um, um, Andrea, you are magnificent. I hope you'll put your, please put your uh, contacts in the chat, your your uh, uh, website. And uh, I know that people are gonna ask you questions uh, about the specifics of your organizing. Let's get, um, uh, uh, Ray, if you can hang with us, uh, let's go straight to Ruth Strauss who always has great stuff to ask. Uh, go ahead, Ruth. Dr. Ruth, there you with yeah, us? Yeah, I just got unmuted. Um, I am a um, Miller and McClendon, that's M&M uh, groupie, uh, and I can certainly attest to uh, the phone banking with Andrea is just great, and I'm glad you're on because I needed a little kick in the rear to get myself going again. So just um, repeat for me, when is the date of the next um, election or whatever? Uh, can you tell me and, and what that is? I'm sorry that I missed that part. It's um, our next election, election day is November 7th. It is for all 140 seats in the Virginia General Assembly. So remember, everybody redistricted in 2020. Most people got new maps in 2021. In Virginia, there was drama. And by the time all the lawsuits were done and we actually got the maps, our state house always runs in odd years. So what that means is we got the maps too late to use them in 2021. So our federal elections in 22 use the new maps. 2023 is the first time the General Assembly folks are going to be using the new maps. Election day is November 7th. Early voting started September 22nd. So when we are calling voters, we are telling voters where they can go and vote now. So if they were like, oh, I want to go vote tomorrow. Well, you can go down to, we can tell them exactly where to go vote. Well, that's amazing stuff. And, and we want to take your template and turn it into something that we can use nationwide in all the states uh, upcoming, in the upcoming elections, some in 23 actually, and in 24. Uh, Ray McClendon, you're in Georgia, uh, in Atlanta, you started a new, oh, one thing I want you to, I know this sounds silly, but uh, just for the record, what does BIPOC stand for? BIPOC means Black Indigenous People of Color. That's what BIPOC stands for. So it's, you know, okay. shorter than me saying Black and Indigenous and Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander. It's just shorter. Okay. As long as people understand it, that's fine. Uh, Ray, um, um, you, want, you and Andrea were the 
prime movers in the um, uh, Georgia Miracle of 2020-2. Um, uh, do you want to jump in and give people, uh, first of all, you've started a new organization. Tell us yeah, about that. And, uh, and then let's roll ahead. Yeah, we've started a new organization called Communities United for Justice. And the, the reason for doing that is, is that based upon the success that we have had working with, with Andrea and others uh, over the last three election cycles uh, that led to the Georgia miracle or the Georgia way, um, a couple of things have occurred. One is that we know that, that something similar is needed outside of the state of Georgia, and we've been asked to help folks in other states. Uh, and, and number two, as, as we have uh, galvanized more and more of these groups, we, we recognize that these same groups that we coordinated and brought together <clears throat> to be more effective and efficient in Georgia, many of these same groups that can reach that BIPOC vote that Andrea was talking about, uh, are also in some of the other battleground states. <clears throat> and so what we wanted to, wanted to do was to have an organization that could go beyond the boundaries of, of Georgia and assist in that fundamental principle. So Communities United is taking the same strategy that we had before now and moving it beyond uh, the, the, the borders, borders of Georgia. To talk about what, what we do, uh, we, we have always done voter registration, voter education, and voter mobilization. Now, I, I, um, we focus on registration year-round, but as we get closer to elections, obviously, it's more about education and mobilization. Education, meaning informing the voters on many of the things that Andrea has already talked about. you got to inform voters on, on some of the basic things. We've done polling, and, and we know that many people don't know where to vote. They don't know what the time frame for voting is, and they they don't understand. They don't believe that their vote counts, and so you, in many cases, you have got to explain to them what really is on the ballot in in fairly blunt and emotional terms that they can understand. So education becomes a, a very important part of reaching BIPOC voters. The other part of that is, as, as was mentioned as well, is that uh, BIPOC voters don't pay attention to TV and radio ads, which is the, the traditional way that, that uh, parties try to reach voters. Uh, and so a, a part of what we have um, come together to do, which was the core of Georgia Way, is to put together this collaborative strategy based on relational organizing that targets specific communities. So that's three com components. Know how to collaborate, uh, implement relational organizing, and do it in targeted communities. The collaboration, everybody understands. We've talked before about how we have all these organizations that are well-intentioned, that are that are out <clears throat> uh, in their silos and are doing, whether it's voter registration or voter mo mobilization, they're out do doing their own thing. Uh, and they're well-intentioned, but uh, we end up stumbling over ourselves and, and not being the most effective. So what we've done is uh, begun to look at uh, how do we coordinate these different groups, especially those who have large numbers of, of volunteers. Uh, Richard Rose, my co-founding co partner, likes to call them the army. We have 
we have groups out there that have armies of potential volunteers, but they don't know how to deploy them. So what we do is come in and say, let's help you deploy uh, people in the right way by um, bringing, coordinating all of these different groups, the fraternities, the, the Masons, uh, the, the um, church volunteers, all of those uh, many in unions, all of those that come together in order to get out in the community. Second part of that is many of these groups, uh, since most of our states that we would be covering have a large number of counties. In Georgia, you know, there are 159 counties. Um, you need, uh, in order to do relational organizing, you must have people in those counties in order to be the most effective. You need to have, um, <clears throat> as, as we like to call it, trusted messengers. You need trusted messengers that are community leaders that people respect in their local area. Uh, you can't take people as an example from uh, Birmingham and put them into the black belt in Alabama. You can't take somebody from Atlanta and put them into the black belt in Georgia. You need to have local people. And the great thing about the organizations that we have coordinated with is that uh, they are service organizations <clears throat> that have uh, as a part of their ethos is to be leaders in their communities, but they need the help from uh, groups like us. And then the final thing is you got to understand where the voters are and what kind of voters you're going after. You know, we do analysis to determine which counties have the highest BIPOC populations and how to target those populations and build messaging for those populations in those counties. As an example, we know what the, the top counties in Metro would be, Metro Georgia, would, Metro Atlanta would be, and we would have messaging tailored to those counties, which would be different from messaging that you would put out to counties in Southwest Georgia. They have different interests and different pain points. And so you have to target your messaging. So those are all of the things that that we put together to be uh, much more efficient, much more effective in running a campaign. And then finally, having a partner like the Center for Common Ground, uh, you know, which which brings the digital platform to the table that allows us to be able to do phone banking, text banking, to be able to do much of the uh, analysis with a database. Uh, that we know is trusted and true that Center for Common Ground owns as opposed to depending on some of these other databases out here that are unproven. So we have the technology in order to implement canvassing, uh, phone banking, text banking, et cetera, where we have the volunteers that are local. So all they have to worry about doing is being ready to get their army of volunteers out uh, and be deployed in a way that strategically makes sense. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, one of the pieces of the core pieces of the puzzle here, uh, uh, jump back to Andrea for a minute. Uh, in our presentation last week, you showed us some democracy centers. Can you uh, show us again what these democracy centers look like? And Ray, I know that you're familiar with this concept and its implementation. This strikes me as something that in terms of long-term protection of our democracy, uh, that this, these democracy centers are really at the core. Can you show the folks what these look like? 
my next door neighbor just started uh, streaming a video, which is why my Zoom crashed and I had to get back on. So I will not be showing um, anything right now. But what I can tell you is our democracy centers are in communities generally where 50% or more of the Black voters have stopped voting all right so we're not going into a community where two-thirds of the voters vote we go into communities where voters are registered they stop voting democracy is not working for them so we normally tell people it's very basic where people are hungry democracy is not working for you where people are homeless, democracy is not working for you. So we are in those communities, but not with people who came in from the outside, with people who live there. So in Roanoke, one of my favorite canvassers, Amazetta, when she would knock on the door, she would say, hey, I'm Zetta. I live over on Calhoun Street immediately establishing for the people who answered the door, hey, I'm from this community just like you. So I understand what the issues are, and I have a vested interest in what happens here. We've surveyed the community members to have them tell us what their pain points were. We've created literature that basically addresses and gives voice to their pain points. And when we do GOTV, we remind them what they're voting for, and we take elections out of this prom queen, prom king type environment where, yeah, it really does feel like your vote doesn't matter if you're voting for candidate A versus candidate B, as opposed to I am voting to accomplish these things in my community. Okay, that kind of separates candidate A from candidate B. And then we also hire and pay people in those communities. We do not bring people in from the outside and pay them. So I want to emphasize, since you raised uh, uh, the issue of money, that um, you know we have refrained from raising money for uh, GREEP. Uh, we, we will need a, a few bucks going forward. But uh, our focus um, going forward in terms of fundraising, um, and John Steiner's on the call, and uh, I don't know if Camilla is going to join us, but uh, we are going to try and funnel uh, whatever dollars we can uh, to the, the this kind of grassroots organization and operation. And we will try and produce a template that will combine the um, uh, modus operandi uh, of the Georgia way, uh, what you're doing in Virginia, uh, what has happened in Ohio, where we fended off a, an attempt to kill a, an abortion referendum. Um, and other other and Florida, of course, which is under fascist attack. Uh, not that the whole country isn't, but uh, that these places, this model of phone banking um, and and democracy centers and your maintenance of the list, your your strategies on 
GOTV. These are all that get out the vote. These are all the things that have been proven and uh, really are the, the last uh, firewall uh, between what's left of our democracy and what's coming uh, in terms of fascism. I mean, it's as simple as that. Uh, and uh, so I, I see Tatanka's on the call. Uh, Joel Siegel, one of the great organizers of our time, Carl Grossman uh, from the No Nukes Movement, Connie Klein also in Cleveland. Um, uh, uh, it's a great group of people here. Um, and so uh, does anyone want to ask Ray and, and Andrea a question before I want to go to Steve Cruz? I want to thank Steve, Mike Hirsch, and Wendy for keeping the things going here. Steve um, uh, is our chief engineer with Mike. Um, um, uh, does anyone ask anything of Andy and Ray before I go to Steve for, uh, and then Wendy for absolutely hair-raising reports from uh, the, the Eastern and Southern Front? <laughs> Uh, Justin, go ahead, Justin LeBlanc. Go ahead. Unmute, Justin. I got to unmute you here. Okay, go ahead. Good afternoon, everybody. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, say thank you to Andrea and Ray for your tireless efforts in all of uh, the work to especially uh, the voters who have been neglected, ostracized or marginalized. Uh, I've seen through uh, events such as Netroots Nation and American Democracy Summit, uh, one which was previous month and then one that just finished this week, that your kinds of efforts around the country really are making the difference, uh, not just for the BIPOC, but for the nation, really. That, that's you're at the core of uh, what's transforming our country. And uh, so wanted to celebrate you for one and for two. Uh, also, yes, definitely promote you and uh, ask if there's any way that we can help promote uh, within say nonprofits or other spaces, these American democracy centers that you're talking about. Well, that is a great question, Justin. And, um, now, on Thursday night, I will be giving a briefing on where we are in Virginia. And one of the things we're going to be talking about is what the current Virginia governor has done to reverse the voting rights advancements that we made in Virginia. Now, Virginia is one of Actually, now there's only three states where we have lifetime felony disenfranchisement. And in Virginia, it's in our constitution that the governor is the god of voting. Well, um, the past three governors have done a lot to make it much easier for people to have their voting rights restored. The current governor, it turns out, has unrestored 17,000 people. And so it's like, what? What is he doing? So we want to talk about that and help people understand not only is abortion on the ballot in Virginia, voting rights is on the ballot in Virginia, education is on the ballot in Virginia, basically everything. So I am going to drop that link 
in the chat so that anybody that wants detailed information on Virginia will be able to get it. We call the Virginia section the road to Richmond. So I just dropped that in the chat. So join us for the road to Richmond. One of the restoration of rights um, activists, Richard Walker, will be joining us on Thursday talking about what is going on in Virginia. So we have the direct threats that we know about. And then it turns out we have other threats that have been basically kind of hidden from view. Thank you. I want to welcome uh, Camilla Reese uh, uh, onto the call as well. And John Steiner, you've got a hand. Let's hear you. Say hi, John. Thank you, Harvey. Uh, Andrea and Ray, great presentation. And Harvey, I'm wondering if you and the team, if it's possible to do an edit of the heart of their presentations that we could begin to use for sharing with other people and perhaps with fundraising. Absolutely. We'll either um, edit what we have or we'll ask Andrea and Ray to uh, come to our studio in Hollywood and <laughs> um, and, and lay down right. back here. We and, might be and, and, Oliver Stone to uh, to direct it. if With, with your private jet to fly them out. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. As long as Angela Bassett plays me, I'm good. No, we want you to play you. <laughs> there you go. Um, um, uh, yes, John, we need to work on that. And of course, we're going to have a meeting uh, uh, on Thursday. Yeah, but, I mean, this is such great presentation by both of them. Absolutely. All right, see what we can do. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, Robert, and, and you look like you're in a car. I hope you're not moving. I'm not Hello, moving. Robert. I parked. Thank you. Hello. Andrea. Okay, go for it. Okay, uh, I'm from Louisiana, from New Orleans, and everybody knows we've been down at the bottom in so many ways. But it's my country. Family's been here 300 years, and I believe that we can do something here. And we have started. We've got together Louisiana, together New Orleans, and Andrea and Ray. What you did in Georgia, I'd like to do here. So how could I get in touch with you and how can we get started and change Louisiana? We've got a lot more going for us than our population. In the imagination of the United States, we play a pretty considerable role in things. And I think what happens here could have effects elsewhere. Well, Robert, I oh, want to thank, I want to thank you, Robert, for jazz. Thank you for jazz. We really appreciate it. Okay, Andrew. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, thank you. And we absolutely would, would love to figure out how to help. That's the reason that we created Communities United for Justice to be able to 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 work in areas that that are calling out for um, some strategic and, and and tactical assistance on on how to move forward and and to use you as an example, uh, you know, based upon the decision in Al in Alabama um, <clears throat> that will create a second black district uh, congressional district in Alabama. Uh, I believe you all have a similar situation right. um, uh, with, with a similar lawsuit. So one of the things that I would look specifically at in Louisiana is to make sure that you have this kind of relational organizing strategy ready to go to work in the proposed new uh, redistricting map for that, for, for, for that seat. 
That is a huge opportunity. And we see how razor thin the mar margins are now in the, in the House. Think about if we had a, a, an additional progressive um, member from Louisiana, from Alabama, from Georgia, and from North Carolina. That would flip the House right there. Uh, yeah. So that's where I would start. Sometimes we get caught up in trying to look at the statewide races and other things. But with, with the success that we've had in the courts here recently, uh, knock on wood, we can, we can make a difference in those districts. And we'd love to work with you on that. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to echo that, Robert. Uh, what I put on the screen, this was my research from 2022. These are registered voters. Yes. So when I look at the numbers in Louisiana, Louisiana, in terms of registered voters, is a very slight minority majority state. The problem is the voters don't vote. Yes. So as someone once told me about Texas, Texas is neither a red state nor a blue state. It's a non-voting state. That's one of the problems with Louisiana. So again, getting voting information out to people, inspiring, giving people a reason to vote. So what am I voting for? What do I want to improve in my communities? I always tell people the number one rule of sales, people do things for their reasons, not yours. So give folks a reason to do it. Okay, we're going to uh, thank you. Uh, you got your, um, put your, uh, uh, obviously, your contacts in the chat. Uh, Robert, you, you should be in touch directly with Ray and Andrea and people in your other states as well. Uh, I want to welcome Melissa Matros, who uh, grew up in Chicago and knows uh, uh, grassroots organizing pretty well. Um, uh, Wendy, you've got a hand. What we're going to do is you're going to try and cover Ohio and Florida in about uh, 13 minutes so we can give uh, Vinny 10 minutes to talk about um, uh, uh, Julian Assange here. Okay, Wendy, go ahead. And then it's all, Steve, if you'll jump in and tell us about Ohio, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, apologize for being on my phone. I'm okay. on um, Andrea's team of low bandwidth. Um, so yeah, I, I you know, I, I want to uh, echo what Ruth said before about how awesome the work that um, Andrea and Ray do and the fun and easiness of the phone banking. Um, that anybody can do it. I mean, really, like, even if you're not tech savvy, Andrea makes it incredibly easy and, and it's a learning experience and it's very fulfilling. Um, I do want to make a quick point about, um, and I completely agree ab about making the relational organizing of getting out the vote and voter engagement from people within the community. Um, there are some groups in Miami that are doing um, like violence prevention by having people within that community go out and supply needs. Um, the one caveat I wanna make is for me personally, I'm working on the abortion issue, I'm doing petitions. So for people that are working on single issues, like particular ballot initiatives, I don't wanna discourage them from trying to um, build bridges. Like we have the water campaign, we have the abortion campaign. And if you're just working on a single issue, that's not necessarily just trying to engage voters, it's trying to raise, raise awareness. I, I get really good response sometimes for 
going out and trying to talk to people that aren't necessarily where I'm from and, and making people feel like I want them to be a part of the system. So for those single issues, and then, and I do see a lot of the, um, the refusal of just like cop, like dropping out of the system. And, and I just try to let people know that, that their voice counts and, and it's wanted by, by everyone. But for when it comes to the GOTV and the, the voter engagement and getting people back into the overall democracy, see if there's groups in your area that are from those communities that are going out into those communities and find ways to uplift them um, from wherever you can. And, um, and let us know if there's some groups that are near you that might benefit from connecting with um, Center for Common Ground and Ray's new group, which I believe is um, Communities United for Justice. So I just wanted to make that point and thank Ray and Andrea so much for all the work they do. And I hope they don't mind me saying so. Thanks so well, much. Very, very good. Thank you, Wendy. And um, there are a lot of single issue campaigns going on. I want to get a quick update. This goes into the you're not going to believe this or uh, you couldn't make this up. Um, Steve, will you tell us, <laughs> it was just a story this morning, what is going on with the two referenda attempts, the one on abortion and the one on voter rights or anti-gerrymandering in Ohio right now? So Attorney General just approved the language for the referendum to have a citizens council comprise the redistricting commission. Right now, it's just the politicians going neck and neck and fighting each other, not wanting, well, some of them, you know who they are, don't want to give up their seats. So uh, that is going to take almost a half a million signatures in 44 counties. Thank God we didn't have the 88 counties that they tried to pass in this surprise election in August that they said they shouldn't have anyway. So <laughs> that's how crazy. So the, the grassroots organizations defeated the August referendum, which was an attempt to completely destroy the referendum process. And we won that. <clears throat> and so as a result of that, this will there be an abortion referendum in Ohio this fall? Yes. Yes, it's on the ballot. I got my ballot printed out. That and the mar marijuana uh, recreational use law. So... That's well, the happening. marijuana one's a mixed bag because we have marijuana on the on the ballot, everybody forgets to vote. Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so I'm going to share. They also um, want to stop ranked choice voting in Ohio. This is the Republican part of Ohio. And they want to limit the primaries um, so that they're not open. So you have to be a member of a party to vote in a primary you know, I, I guess that includes independence, but. Uh, is that a state, is the legislature passing a law saying you have to be a member of a party to vote in the primary? They're working on that. They're working on that. So okay. everything, every branch they can stick in the works to uh, suppress our freedom, they're on it. Count on it. Okay. It's not going to stop until we stop it, literally. So, well, I've got to say, and I, this is bears repeating, is that in this country now, the real crisis of democracy is the state legislatures. And there's no legislature. You've got the Florida, you've got the, the, the Ohio. Uh, you're fighting tooth and nail in Virginia. We're nowhere near close in Ohio or Florida to getting hold of these legislatures, which are totally gerrymandered. And this dates back to the 2010 
off your um, uh, R-A-T-F-U dash dash K-E-D uh, election um, where they would Carl Rove really uh, gerrymandered the maps all over the country. So this fight is going on. When will we know uh, in Ohio, uh, Steve, as to what's going to happen here with this referendum? It's a referendum for the new districting commission. Is that going to be on the fall, this fall or next fall? Next fall. 2024. 2024. Yeah. And so when it comes to gerrymandering, I think it bears repeating the, the real template, the model uh, that we have won for reasonable statewide uh, election maps is in California. And then in 28 and 2010, uh, there were referenda, one for the state legislature districts and then one for the congressional districts where we got a nonpartisan statewide commission to draw relatively fair maps. Now, it's actually not um, perfect, of course, but it's worked reasonably well, uh, thanks to the support uh, of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who actually put in $3 million of his personal money to win these referenda. So in uh, California, uh, if we're looking for a statewide um, a district a drawing, California is the place to go uh, at this point in time. And we're nowhere near that in Ohio. But uh, the, the legislators in Ohio are absolutely shameless about um, gerrymandering the map. And I want to mention, uh, Ray, you mentioned Alabama. Um, even though the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that Alabama has to have two predominantly BIPOC districts, the legislature is is uh, refusing to comply. Is that correct? They defied the ruling. Um, the appellate uh, court has overruled them, and they have now established a special master. So there will be a special master that will actually form the maps, and they have already proposed uh, a set of recommenda recommendations on the maps. Well, well Ohio it's, just it's, go ahead, just, Steve. Just recently. The Dems buckled. We gave them lemons. The Dems said, fine, we'll make lemonade. So they figure they have a certain amount of advantage. It's better than it was before. They're going to take it and run and try to get this referendum passed in the meanwhile. So they're not going to challenge it anymore like Alabama. They could have taken the Supreme Court and go through all those gyrations. But no. It's amazing. You know who we really need? We, re we really need U.S. Grant to uh, reconvene the Army of the Potomac and uh, enforce these districts. Uh, I do want to bring well, here, in. Really... Here, let me just say one more thing, uh, yeah. Harvey. What, what they're really trying to do, they know that these these seats could make the difference in these different states uh, by redrawing these maps. And what they're trying to do is to run out the clock. Remember, all of these maps um, were changed, and because of the legislation and how close they were to uh, uh, the primaries they were uh, allowed to use the maps most favorable to the Republicans. So that's why they are openly defying the appellate courts and even the Supreme Court uh, with the hope that they can draw out the legal process and everybody will throw up their hands and say, oh, well, let's just go with the maps we have because it's too close to 2024. Yeah, you know, these, these guys uh, have no shame. They really don't. I do want to mention that we have Tatanka Brick on while we're talking about grassroots organizing. Tatanka has worked over the decades with uh, the, the farm workers um, and um, uh, Dolores Huerta, 
Do you want to throw in a quick word uh, to talk about grassroots organizing and the connections that you could make with the uh, California uh, farm workers and that whole tradition? Well, what I want to say is that what Ray has talked about and what Andrea is talking about is exactly what Caesar and Dolores also did. It was grassroots, relational organizing, local. The Dolores Huerta Foundation has a dozen vecinos unidos in the Central Valley. That is uh, uh, Neighbors United. It's a local group. They work on local issues, uh, clean water, uh, 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 school board, uh, planning commission, things like that. And they get people elected there and then it works its way up to the state and nation. It takes time, but it's house meetings. It's it's year round. It's the same model, year round people who live in the area, trusted messengers. So those same people that have been helping you all year, they're the people then that help turn out the vote and it works. So the only question I have is that if you, do you, Ray and Andrea, do you do you have a representative from the Dolores Huerta Foundation, for instance, and other groups like that on your work? Do you need it or is it we're just all working together in separate areas? No, we, we definitely have... Uh, love to talk with them and, and see okay. how we can coordinate because it's all about coordination. Yeah, that's that's the whole point is to coordinate. Yep. We're not trying to change anybody else's strategy. We're just trying to say if if you're working in a particular area, how can we help you become more effective? Okay, well, I'll I'll uh, I'll have either Camila Chavez, who is Dolores's youngest daughter, who is the executive director, or Lori Pisante, who's the person who's in charge of the uh, the voting end of it. I'll have them get in touch with both you and Andrea. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's that's important. And, and Tanka, we're going to have a meeting on Thursday, so I'll contact you about that as okay. well. Um, I, I do want. Uh, um, we're joined by Dave Solomon, which is great. And as I say, Camilla is with us. Um, um, Dorothy Reich is with us. Thank you, Dorothy, for joining us. Um, um, uh, Justin and Wendy, real quick, can you defer so we can get Vinny in, and then you can uh, jump in after Vinny. Is that okay? Uh, Lynn Feinerman is with us as well. Uh, Vinny DiStefano, uh, speaking of grassroots organizing, can you give us five quick minutes on uh, where we are with uh, Julian Assange and how you can connect I'll up? I'll do my uh, best tobacco auctioneer. First, today please. is October 2nd. This is the day that the British court opens up, and they may, may begin hearing the extradition trial. They have given the defense 30 minutes for the entire trial. Now, that could occur tomorrow, the next day, it occur in months. We don't know. But we will find as soon as they convene the court when they will hear him and what will happen. More importantly, and more to the point for us here in the United States, October 23rd, Anthony Albanese is coming to meet with President Joe Biden. We're securing people to write op-eds regarding the slap in the face to the Australian people, and in particular, to the Prime Minister of Australia, one of the United States' most important allies. They are trying to extradite a citizen who's only had his feet on the ground of the United States for four <clears throat> days total to uh, be charged with the Espionage Act as a, uh, as a traitor to a country that he's not a citizen of. And uh, we are calling for action in uh, D.C., on the 23rd in support of the meeting with Anthony Albanese. And we're reaching out to a variety of different people to write op-eds on that. Now, Nils Meltzer, who was the UN Rapporteur on Torture, who has wrote the definitive book on the trial against Julian Assange, 
oddly enough, called The Trial of Julian Assange. Um, there has been no review by a paper of note. And so we're reaching out to papers to see if they'll do a review of that book so people can educate themselves, particularly our elected officials. Most recently, we had, I believe it was 16 uh, MPs who came to the United States who were able to meet with our elected officials and lobby on Julian's behalf. Now, when he will be extradited, if he will be extradited, is up in the air. Anybody that wants to know when that could happen, well, it could happen tomorrow. They could throw a bag over his head, if you'll excuse the expression, and stuff him in a plane and bring him here. But more than likely, I think that what they're going to attempt to do is to kick the can down the road and keep him in jail as long as they can until the 2024 elections are over. So the important thing for us is for people to be in D.C. to show support for the prime minister of Australia in his call to have one of his fellow citizens released from an unfair and entirely undemocratic uh, prison sentence that he's been uh, subjected to without being convicted of anything. Okay. Well, now you have quite a grassroots network, uh, Vinny. Yes. And um, I think it would be great for you to connect with uh, Ray and, uh, and Andrea to, to, and, and to talk, of course, to merge these, these networks to continue to, to uh, uh, organize. I would be humbled to be able to do that, particularly since Tatanka and I and your own fine self are running for the Pacifica board as well. I may yes. mention that if any of you are Pacifica members, uh, I believe I believe the voting is over, isn't it? Yes, it is. So we'll find out October 10th how, how that went. But in terms of your, your organizing, thanks for mentioning that. But in terms of your organizing, um, uh, it's, you, you, you've, you've got many miles on your tires there. And it's great to it'd be great to bring your Assange network in to work with Andrea and Ray. I would love to do that. Love to do that. And I want to go to Joel Siegel in a minute. Uh, Joel, if you got just to say a couple words about your experiences with grassroots organizing, especially in North Carolina. Go ahead, Tatanka, please. Yeah, I just want to point out something I've heard over and over again today from Vinny, from Ray, from several other people. It's the delay tactic. It's kick it down the road. And what is under that is I think our opposition, sometimes more than we, understand how powerful we are. They don't want to get us mobilized. They just want to wear us down by a by a thousand stabs. You know, they don't want their Trump. Everybody, they they're running from the courtrooms. They're running from any accountability. They just want to get us so discouraged that then they can do something in the middle of the night and they won't arouse us. So what that tells me is this is the precise time for each of us to find a way to take responsibility and get organized with the, the new group that Ray's organizing, with the things that we're doing with uh, Harvey uh, for fundraising for this uh, work around. Oh, Joel, I'm going to turn it over to you. Good to see your face, my friend. Thank you, Tatanka. Um, hello, everybody. I just want to say that whatever we can do to get uh, the funding uh, to Ray and Andrea for the relational organizing, that's really the key. The key is going to be uh, financing. So every, you know, every bit helps. Um, and also, I know that based on my experiences working with Ray and Andrea, every penny that goes to them is going to be well spent. Um, but if, if, if we just run TV ads all the time, um, we're, we're going to keep, we'll lose elections. But it's, it's, a, it's about funding. That's, that's the most important thing right now. And I think 
this uh, hookup between the Dolores Huerta Foundation and with Ray and Andrew, that's that's going to be key. Yes, thank you. And of course, the work in North Carolina continues and the horror stories coming out there. I mean, these these right wing uh, politicians are really hanging on by fingernail. And um, uh, we got to we got to get our nail clippers and, and do this on a grassroots basis. Uh, thank you so much for that, Joel. Avini, is there anything else you want to add? We have a state senator coming in. I also joined at six. We also are joined by Robert Freeling, uh, the great um, um, uh, expert on renewable energy in California. And we really want to uh, hear from him after the top of the hour. Robert, I'm, I'm glad you're with us. I know you're recovering from an illness. So thank you very much for being with us. Um, uh, Vinny, did you want to jump and throw the only other thing that I would say, and, and, well, then, and Andrea, yeah, the only Go thing ahead. I would say is everybody encourage everyone you know to reach out to your elected officials, tell them to drop this extradition. Each one of our elected officials swore an oath to defend the Constitution against enemies, both foreign and domestic, and that, that pesky little First Amendment regarding free speech and freedom of the press. It's not Julian that's on trial. That is what on is on trial. And it's not just here in the United States. It's around the globe. So we would encourage people to reach out to their elected officials, to abide by their oath, and to defend the Constitution. Thank you, Harvey. Thank you. Uh, uh, Ray and then Andrea, please. Ray McClendon. You still I'm sorry. Here? Yeah, so we just want to wrap up and we're going to move on. But um, you and um, a few of us are going to meet on Thursday. Yes, we'll, yes, we'll, absolutely. We'll further the uh, Vinny, you're welcome to join us. Tatanka, we'll send the direct, we'll send the- uh, And, and, and Tatanka, let me, let me just reiterate this. Tatanka is absolutely right. Um, uh, they want to disenfranchise and dissuade and discourage. And this is the work that's important to ensure that that does not happen. Uh, they they want to to uh, as Bannon has said flood, flood flood the zone with crap and he used another word uh, and that's what they're trying to do in order to to uh, have our voters you all of us on this call are dealing with this every day and so we know the nuance but the average voter does not and if they look just at the top of the ticket with all of the misinformation and disinformation out there. People will say, "Why do I need to vote?" They're both, you know, both parties are corrupt. Both tops of the ticket are corrupt. Doesn't make any difference in my life, and therefore I just won't vote. And in that case, they win. So that's what we have got to come out and combat. Very well said, uh, uh, Andrea Miller. Are you still with us? I don't think I see you on the screen, Andrea. Did you de depart? Um, okay, uh, uh, Wendy, uh, you wanted to jump in with a couple words from Florida. Sure, thank you. And actually just gonna write in the chat and also encourage people to run themselves for local offices, which is really important. Um, people don't think that that's an option, but they can. Um, thanks, yeah, I mean, really, I, I'm just, just gonna say that Florida is pretty fascist. Um, we have these uh, um, these congressional maps last year, uh, DeSantis drew his own maps despite the um, the regular process of legislature, then getting the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court review. And the Supreme Court refused to hear any cases brought about by um, voting groups against these new maps when we got an extra seat. So we had 28 seats and now we have 20 Republican seats in eight districts. And so recently this year, um, a district court 
struck down the maps um, because there's, uh, I think it was the fifth district, the congressional district. Um, like you guys were discussing, it was, it's a traditionally black district and the representative Al Lawson lost his seat because they split it up. And so um, the fifth circuit uh, struck it down. And then we had the Alabama case, the um, Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court upheld an Alabama decision saying that their maps were um, intentionally disenfranchising citizens. So that's a really good precedent for a lot of these um, state cases. And now we have um, Common Cause, the NAACP, Florida Rising, and a few other independent voting groups, Black, Black Voters Matter. Um, they're bringing a federal case um, against this um, same district. But the, the real elephant in the room is that the Dem Party... Um, the Dem Party hasn't an done anything. There's been no pushback. And when the progressives try to, even the state progressive caucus has kind of gotten in bed with the, the Dem Party. And so I, I just I think it's um, a real blight on on the Democrats. And it just shows that we, we need a real grassroots movement that's trying to break through the soil and grow through in Florida. And hopefully, um, you know, I just say that things have to get worse to get better. Sometimes people need to be motivated. And if we can get word out about what's going on with these maps, because we, it, it ends up with m minority rule. I mean, I'm on, I'm out I'm talking to people on the streets and even people that voted for DeSantis and Republicans, like they're like, this is going too far, just all the usurping of power that's happening. So I do have a lot of faith that um, the grassroots and the people will start to rise up. And when you just talk to your community, I mean, just talk to the people that feel like things aren't working and that they have no say. I mean, that just motivate them that that's the only way things will change and just let them know that fascism takes hold when we don't stand up. And even just making that connection and having that conversation, caring about the other, even people on the other side of the aisle, it's just when you start by listening, and, and honoring other people and meeting them where they're at and focusing on solutions, then we can we can start to make headway and because um, we can't leave it to the establishment party. So anyway, thank you. You're muted, Slugo. You, Harvey, you're muted. There we are. We are we are nonpartisan, and uh, it's it's uh, not e not hard to. Uh... Uh, want to be away from both parties and the the, the um, behavior of the Democratic Party in in Florida is just astounding. Same in uh, almost the same in Ohio and most most other places. Uh, Ruth Strauss, and then we're joined by the great <coughs> Linda Seawig, excuse me, <coughs> in California. In California, and Mike Hirsch has come back to us. We do have a speaker scheduled for uh, uh, a six from a um, uh, Maryland, a state senator, but I don't see him yet. Uh, Ruth, go ahead, and then we'll. If we don't see the state senator, we'll go to uh, Robert Freeling and and uh, Linda Seeley for the update at Diablo. Okay, Ruth, go ahead. Yeah, just a quickie. Um, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. The Democrats have been just awful, and especially in Florida, I, I can't remember right now, but there was a wonderful congresswoman who was running African. An American lady who had actually been a, a police uh, head of a police department or something like that before, and they gave her no support whatsoever. But the thing that I really wanted to say is that yes, we cannot let our guard down because this same court that did this, you know, anomalous for this court 
to um, rule in the Alabama case about making a second district, they're the same ones who did the Shelby decision several years ago that disenfranchised Blacks. People, you know, um, had to, you know, couldn't get to a voting place to register or couldn't get to a DMV because the, re- the DMVs were so were closed down. And so people would have to travel 20, 30 miles just to get, a, you know, a voter ID or whatever. So um, it's just a reminder that, you know, one victory uh, doesn't, uh, you know, uh, make us be able to sit back and relax. And I know you didn't imply that, Wendy, but I just wanted to point out that the um, Supreme Court, you know, is mostly bad. And when they're good, it's a crapshoot. So thank you. <clears throat> yeah. And when they're good, the, uh, the legislatures <laughs> just blow them off. And um, I want to point out, by the way, that Ruth is actually from Alabama and um, and, and speaks with great knowledge. Alinda Seeley and Robert Freeling, if you can wait for us, please. We have invited about we have invited a state senator from um, uh, Maryland. Uh, Mike Hirsch has done the honors. It's re- great. And then we'll get to California. Um, well, certainly within the 20 minutes or a half hour, if that's OK with you. OK, uh, we uh, Mike Hirsch has done the great service of bringing us um, uh, Jeff Waldstriker from uh, Maryland. I guess, uh, Jeff, you're sitting in your office. You are a state senator. Mike, are, are you available to introduce Jeff Waldstriker, Mike Hirsch? Yes, absolutely. I've had the honor of knowing Jeff um, from his very first campaign to run as a Maryland state delegate. And luckily, he was successful with that campaign. He served with honor and distinction in the House of Delegates for quite a few terms. And then when his turn was there, he stepped up to be my state senator where he represents me proudly in Annapolis, doing all he can to help people on a wide range of issues, uh, taking the initiative, leading the way, bringing together coalitions to get legislation actually passed. Unlike a lot of people who are in elected office to say things, he's there to actually do things. And so it's a great honor and privilege to introduce my state senator, Jeff Waldstriker. Hey, Jeff, I want to, um, uh, Senator, I want to let you know, Senator, we have about uh, 43 people on the call. We are live streamed, and this will be rebroadcast on the Progressive Radio Network on Thursday night. So you have a substantial audience, and I want to thank Mike for bringing you on. And we know you're a great uh, pioneer on the climate, so uh, let's, let's, let's get to know you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate um, everyone being here this evening and both on the live stream and in the rebroadcast of this. So um, your invitation was very kind and I'm, I'm proud to be here. And let me thank Mike Hirsch. Uh, Mike Hirsch is a progressive's progressive. Uh, we've been working to, together here in Montgomery County and across Maryland for almost 20 years together. And Mike has never wavered in his principles and never wavered in his belief Um, that progressive policies can really make the difference in people's lives um, and that we need to be active participants both when it comes to ideas, but also when it comes to politics. Um, And and Mike is just an incredible ally uh, and really a progressive force to be reckoned with here in Maryland. So Mike, thank you for this invitation. Um, I've been asked to talk about a couple of important issues tonight, but the first is uh, the big one, the Climate Solutions Now Act, which we passed in Maryland Um, this past legislative um, assembly, actually the one before, excuse me, I should say, 2022. 
And for those of you, I know we're, we have some, a national audience here. Uh, basically, the Climate Solutions Now Act uh, is the Green New Deal, uh, but at the state level here in Maryland. And it makes dramatic changes in how we address the climate change crisis in this state. Now, I get it. We're a relatively small state. We have about six and a half million people here. Uh, and we can't do this on our own. And for those of you who are advocating in other states, uh, please keep doing what you're doing. But, but just because you can't solve the problem doesn't mean it's not your obligation to do your part. And here in Maryland, that's exactly what we did. So uh, the Democratic State Legislature, which has a, a overwhelming Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate, uh, passed this important bill. So just so you know, Maryland has always been at the forefront of climate change legislation, but a lot of what we were doing was setting goals. Um, and setting goals is important, and putting numbers on things is important, and making clear uh, when we're going to reduce um, our, our climate pollution, our carbon pollution, and at, you know, at what speed, that's important. But what's also critically important is that we actually take the steps to get to those numbers and begin hitting those numbers to show our voters um, that we are making progress and that we believe in what we do and that government can do big things. And that's what the Climate Solutions Now Act is. So um, what it does is it requires us to reduce our carbon emissions in Maryland uh, by 50% by 2030. And then it requires us to go carbon free by 2040. And it provides a tremendous amount of incentives and uh, mechanisms to get us on our way there. And in fact, uh, we already know that these policies are working. Uh, a report came out by our Department of Natural Resources, essentially kind of like the EPA of Maryland, um, that says we have reached the first goal. We are 50% on our way to the first goal. In other words, just two years after the passage of the bill, we are halfway to the 2030 goal and we've got seven years to go. So it means that uh, policy makes a difference and it means that what we have done um, has been working. It wasn't easy getting to this point. We relied heavily on progressives like you. And for those of you who live here in Maryland, you know um, that um, this is actually intended to be passed a year earlier and two really strong progressives uh, who had co-sponsored this bill um, at the last minute got into a dispute with each other about uh, the details of the bill. And actually, because of that, the bill failed at the last minute. But sometimes failure is the genesis of next year's success. And that, I mean, I don't know what to call it other than an embarrassment. That embarrassment brought everyone together and said, listen, that we're not being responsive to the people of Maryland uh, and we need to move fast, fast um, in this climate crisis. And that's exactly what we did the following year in 2022 to pass the legislation. Um, and so here we are, and now we're in the implementation phase. Now, many of you know that when we passed the bill, our governor here in Maryland was a Republican governor, Governor Larry Hogan. Um, he did not sign the bill. In fact, he vetoed it, and we overrode that veto in Maryland. But now we've got a new governor. It's Governor Wes Moore, uh, a fierce progressive, a strong Democrat, who knows that this climate crisis is the generational crisis of our time. Um, a younger governor, he's about my age, 43, 44, with young kids, uh, and believes as I do in a deeply personal way that we have to leave uh, this planet better than we found it for our children and grandchildren. And so the Moore administration is now in the process of implementing this omnibus bill and has done it in a way that has been very successful so far. 
He's been collaborative with legislators and he's been uh, listening closely to activists like everyone on this call uh, to show that we can make um, really a, a, a fierce difference when it comes to this issue. Um, and so um, I know uh, Mike and, and, and Mr. Wasserman, I, I don't know what format you wanna take. Uh, Mike um, <coughs> wanted me well, to- Let me ask you a question yeah. real quick. Um, unless Mike, you wanna jump in first. Go right ahead, Saga. Is there a, um, <clears throat> what is the uh, renewable component of your push for, um, to cut carbon emissions? Is there, is there a substantial uh, program uh, coming through the legislature or other or bodies? And I, we, have, we have on the line a great expert in renewables, Ron Leonard, um, who's one of real founders of the solar industry in the United States. And we also have Carl Grossman on Long Island, a great energy expert. So what is the wind and solar efficiency and battery component of your uh, war on global uh, warming? Yeah, so it's it's a huge proportion of it. Uh, Maryland for many, many years has had um, a renewable portfolio standard, which is just the jargony term for to say what amount of energy in Maryland is required to come from renewables. Um, and that will go up each and every year um, and um, is primarily focused on the renewables um, that we want to be focused on. So that is solar and wind, uh, as well as to a lesser extent geothermal. Um, but Maryland will be a leader uh, when it comes to wind and that's in partnership with the Biden administration, uh, which of course passed the Inflation Reduction Act and other infrastructure legislation that will dramatically invest in renewables and allow Maryland to move forward. So uh, many of you know that the, the, the only major wind project in the United States is off the coast of, I believe Rhode Island, um, but along the mid-Atlantic, Maryland, um, and New Jersey, as well as Massachusetts, there are very, and Delaware as well, there are very distinct and real plans to move this forward. In other words, Maryland has, uh, the industry has already begun the process of building these turbines. They're doing it on land in Baltimore in an area that used to be in fact a union steel, steel mill and are now bringing back real American union jobs to Baltimore in order to build these windmills and put them off the coast of Maryland. So um, everything is moving in the right direction when it comes to renewables. And of course it has incentives in it for battery power. Um, I know many of you probably have electric cars um, that, that use this um, power and um, the incentives combine of course with our federal incentives. So you're gonna see really fast progress here in Maryland. Um, for those of you who know this state, I think you probably know that Maryland um, is a progressive state, but rarely moves first um, and doesn't always move boldly. That is changing under the leadership of this Speaker of the House. Her name's Adrian Jones and this Senate president, his name is Bill Ferguson and especially this Governor Wes Moore, um, who are anxious to get this industry up and running um, here in Maryland. Okay, and you, you know from Mike that uh, Mike brought us um, uh, Jamie Raskin on the call as well, so. Um, That's great. <clears throat> yes. Mike, did you want to ask anything or do you want to go to people with hands? Uh, just real real quickly, Jeff, what, what do you have in store for us in the upcoming session? I know you've been busy um, planning and, and putting together coalitions to get your legislation through. Can you give us a sneak preview? Yeah, thank you, Mike, for that question. I really appreciate it. Well, so on this front, on the environmental front, the next 
step forward is really just the implementation uh, of the law. And I know that sounds um, less ambitious because so much of what we do is legislatively driven. And especially at the federal level where you see just complete paralysis on environmental issues, so much of our energy as progressives is about passing this bill, passing this bill, passing that bill, moving our legislators forward. What happens after you pass something as big as the Climate Solutions Now Act in Maryland is it's really about the nitty gritty of the agencies implementing that bill on a day-to-day -day basis, the secretaries that the governor appoints, making sure that, that these things get implemented in fidelity, with fidelity. So our role as a legislature is really in this case, an oversight role to make sure now that we have done the, the, the tough legislative work that the governor and his staff do the tough implementation work. And I have no doubt knowing Governor Westmore that that's exactly what's going to happen. Now, Mike, you mentioned you know, some of the other stuff we're doing. Um, and, and I think you asked me to just talk briefly about a, a separate issue that your audience would be interested in, and I'm, I'm happy to do so. Many of you on this call as progressives, as parents, as community leaders um, care deeply about gun safety issues. Um, this is an issue that, that's close to my heart and an issue I've worked on for a long time. Uh, Maryland has October 1st effective dates for many of its uh, pieces of legislation. That was just yesterday. Um, and so yesterday, um, a bill that I was proud to sponsor, it was Senate Bill 1, it's called the Gun Safety Act of 2023. And it passed um, overwhelmingly in Maryland and went into effect yesterday. What does this bill do? Well, as you know, uh, the right-wing Supreme Court has been uh, coming down with some very uh, unfortunate and in my mind, tragic ruling on abortion issues, of course, uh, in the Dobbs case, but also in a case called Bruin um, that, was, that came down in June of 2022. And basically what this Bruin case said was the default in our society is going to be that anyone can bring any gun anywhere at any time, that you essentially have a second amendment right and of course we know this was never intended by our founders, a second amendment right to carry arms in public. But this builds on the Supreme Court case that, uh, that many of you know about from about 15 years ago that says you have, you have a second amendment right to have guns in your own home. But one of the interesting things of that Bruin case was they said, yeah, 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 what, you, you can take a gun anywhere, but not in sensitive places. And uh, this will not shock you, but they said one of the sensitive places is courthouses. Well, of course, there's more justices, you, you know, they don't want guns in, in their place. But they also said legislative assemblies, other government buildings, uh, schools, polling places, and then said that list is not exclusive, that legislatures can and should have the power to define other sensitive places where guns cannot and should not be allowed. And so I was proud to lead the charge of a, a piece of legislation that went into effect just yesterday um, that defines the sensitive places here in Maryland um, where guns are not allowed, hospitals, schools, uh, the stadium where the Ravens play, the stadium where the commanders play. Um, I see the question that came up, uh, bars. That's a really good question. Let me circle back to that. Um, but all the sensitive places that you think should be protected from firearm violence are protected under our law. We did include um, bars and restaurants that serve alcohol in the bill. And that was one of the most important parts of the legislation. And we knew it was going to be one of the most controversial parts of the legislation. Um, it will shock no one on this call um, that the MAGA forces and the NRA forces joined together in a lawsuit against this bill to make sure that it never took effect. 
And yesterday, or excuse me, Friday, there was a preliminary injunction issued by a judge. And uh, that judge upheld almost the entirety of the, of the gun safety bill, which I think is a big win for those of us who support gun safety. But on a preliminary basis, the judge struck down the portion about um, alcohol, about uh, bars and restaurants that serve alcohol, um, and said, this is a little bit different than schools and hospitals um, because defining drunk people as vulnerable people or people who congregate with drunk people as vulnerable is a little bit um, perhaps tenuous in the mind of the drug, uh, in the mind of the judge. Um, it will be no surprise that um, I disagree with that decision, even as I respect it. Um, but it's only a preliminary injunction. In other words, this will continue to litigate. And my hope is once the judge sees the oral arguments and uh, the briefing on this issue, uh, the judge will come to agree with, with me, the assembly and the Maryland Attorney General, Anthony Brown, um, that bars and restaurants that serve alcohol should be protected from firearms. Amazing. So we're in a good, well, good, for in a good place. <clears throat> Very good for you. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that the Supreme Court would say that you can't carry a gun into a courtroom. I always assumed that Judge Thomas went in there uh, packing, but uh, I guess I guess he's not carrying a gun. Uh, uh, anyway, um, let's go to Myra Reeson, Connie, and then um, uh, Linda Seeley. Go ahead, Myra, please. Oh, so Senator, so great to have you uh, with us. I I was really surprised. I I just looked up. I thought Calvert Cliff's nuclear plant had been shut. But according to Wikipedia, it's still operating, uh, and it, it was uh, started operations in 1950. So we're talking about a 73-year-old nuclear plant, and um, and I'm wondering. I, one of my questions is, what percentage of energy uh, in Maryland comes from this uh, decrepit old nuclear power plant? And in the legislation. Um, is nuclear power considered to be clean, green, carbon-free? Um, uh, and and when are you, have you have you been working at all to uh, to get it shut? Yeah, so great question. Thank you, Milo, for that question. I appreciate it. So um, I don't have the exact statistic, um, but I think something uh, around the number between fifteen and twenty percent of energy in Maryland uh, comes from nuclear power. Um, and uh, that power plant that you're referencing, that nuclear power plant in Calvert Cliffs, Maryland, uh, is scheduled to be decommissioned. Um, but the owner has started making noise about um, not decommissioning it. So I guess the, the status quo, the current plan is to decommission it. And I think that's a good thing. In other words, I support a move to fully clean power and nuclear power is carbon free, but is not clean under Maryland law um, and is not clean under any way that you, know, that you can explain it. Um, you know, if, I, if I told my kids like, hey, guess what? There's this source that, of energy that's carbon free, but uh, you've got radioactive bars um, that are the, the, you know, the product of this, they would say, well, that's not really clean. Um, and so if, if kids can understand that we should be able to do so, um, and we know that, that uh, nuclear waste is, is as your, um, as folks are writing in the chat here, uh, can be deeply harmful to our communities. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the next fight on this is it's scheduled to be decommissioned, um, but the ownership is um, starting to backtrack on that. 
So just one quick follow-up. I, I disagree with you on one point, and that is that nuclear really isn't carbon-free. Carbon that is a myth. Um, radioactive carbon, carbon-14, is emitted from, uh, from nuclear power plants. And, uh, and the whole, if you, if you take into consideration the mining of uranium and the disposal of the waste from, from soup to nuts or whatever, um, there's a lot of carbon in the process, and it's a it's one of the talking points that's been used by the nuclear power industry to uh, to argue that we that we need it because it's carbon free. It's really not. So Got I, it. I hope you won't say that anymore. Thank you. Okay. Thank deal. You deal. Okay. Uh, Connie. Uh, Connie Klein. Connie Klein is one of the great. Uh, thank you, Myla. Myla is a great uh, pioneer in the no nukes movement, and Connie Klein who's in Cleveland, um, has also been a great leader uh, in, uh, in going to clean energy. Connie, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, well, actually, thanks to Myla, because she pretty much asked uh, all my questions on nuclear. Um, I want to thank the senator for attending the meeting. It's been very informative. Um, Okay. One thing that I, I one follow up question to Myla. Does uh, the energy law um, consider nuclear power as a renewable energy source? Uh, it does yep. not. Good. Oh, yeah. It, it does not. Correct. Um, so, you know, we, there's, there's no question. Um, that the nuclear industry uh, wants to consider their power clean. And there's no question um, that there are some legislators that I serve with um, that are, I'm trying to put this charitably, empathetic uh, with that <laughs> idea. Um, but, but ultimately, and, and, and I think, you know, going back, I don't know, 10 years that may have gotten more purchase. Um, but I think even now, um, some of our more moderate members um, have come to, and, and, and Marilyn, uh, unlike the federal government has both conservative and moderate Democrats. And, and to be clear, I think that's a good thing because if they weren't there, there'd be Republicans there. Um, but I think uh, even my more conservative Democratic colleagues have come to agree that um, that nuclear power is not clean and that we need to keep it out of our renewable portfolio standard and move towards real renewables across the state. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm uh, some of my good friends uh, uh, live in Maryland, uh, 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 Paul Gunter um, and Michael Marriott, who's passed away from uh, Nuclear Information Resource Service. Uh, you have quite a bastion of really powerful nuclear opponents, in, uh, especially in Tacoma Park, and uh, a great resource to draw on. You said, by, by the way, very small point, you said that Maryland gets 10 to 15 percent of its energy from nuclear. That's probably electricity. Probably not the energy, and there's a, there's got a definite it. distinguish. Definitely. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah okay. that's helpful. Absolutely. I want to introduce you, uh, Senator. Um, I don't know if Ina Kali is on with us. Um, I want to introduce you to Linda Seeley and not. Ron Leonard. Linda Seeley um, is a leader of a group called the Mothers for Peace that have been around uh, since before you were born in um, in San Luis Obispo, California, finding the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant. Uh, Linda, do you want to say hi to the senator here and um, <laughs> just connect? And I want to also connect you with Ron Leonard, 
who is a um, a pioneer in this in the renewable energy industry. Let me just I'm say, I'm so I'm happy to hear these words coming from. You, actually, we'd invite we'd like to invite you, our senator, to step in and become governor of California. Yeah, please. Right now, it would be very helpful. Very helpful. <laughs> Thank I'm you glad. for that. Yeah, and Ron I, Leonard. Um, Ron Leonard, uh, we'll get to you in a couple of minutes, Linda. We'll come back to Diablo. Sure. But uh, Ron Leonard is a, you should be in touch with Ron Leonard uh, for uh, counseling on the uh, renewable side. Uh, Ron is a, as I say, a founder of the, of the green energy movement in terms of the actual business. Uh, Ron, do you want to say hi to the Senator, please? Yeah, hi, Senator. I don't know what's wrong with my video, but be that as it may, it's great to hear the words out of your mouth that renewables is not only uh, on your mind, but it's in legislation that means that we are going to proceed to 100% renewable energy. And what I'd like to do is help you out in that vein, because one of my associates, his name is Dr. Mark Perez, has come up with a way to do this uh, in uh, uh, a very studied uh, and uh, forthright way to show that if you do a study of your grid, we can buy that study show you economically the safest, fastest way to transfer the entire grid to 100% renewable energy. And he's doing that around the world. So it's a good resource and we'll, we'll make a connection for you. Yeah, I'd love that. Absolutely. Thank you. That's what's great about when progressives come together um, in, in places like this. Um, not only are there ideas shared across the country, um, but there are businesses and products that are being shared that can really make a difference uh, when it comes to our community on environmental issues and on a lot of other issues. So, Ron, I appreciate you. Well, well one of the great, we appreciate you. One of the great miracles of, uh, of social um, activism has been in the last, um, well, since uh, 1975, there was a conference in Amherst, Massachusetts at UMass with Amory Lovins. I don't know if you know who Amory Lovins is. He's the great godfather of um, the overview of a, of a, a renewable powered world. And um, we have been putting forth a solar topian vision of 100% renewables uh, for um, better on all, well on 50 years. And the great miracle is it has really exceeded expectations. The, the economic viability of wind and solar and efficiency and now batteries, you know, batteries are on the brink of one of the great technological breakthroughs if we can switch batteries from lithium to sodium, which I think will happen in the next couple of years, the whole energy picture changes. So um, you're on the cutting edge here. And if we can get Maryland to 100% green, that'd be wonderful. You seem to be right in the forefront there. So be, do be in touch with Ron. Uh, he's got the numbers and the industry. Absolutely. And you know, what's funny is I, I really like the word you used, utopian, because I think um, that type of kind of big idea and dreaming is still really an important part of our movement. Um, and it, it has to start somewhere. So sometimes it, it feels utopian and then becomes real. And each and every one of you has made that happen in your own states and, and here in Maryland. Well, so we are, I am in California, a lot of us are in California, and we're having a battle, as you may know, with the governor who is uh, reneging on a plan to phase out the two reactors at Diablo Canyon. And in that plan in 2016, uh, the governor who was then Jerry Brown, the lieutenant governor who was then Gavin Newsom, now the governor, 
the unions, the, uh, the, the legislature, the, the utilities commission, the local governments, the environmental groups, all came together and put in a phase out plan for Diablo Canyon. And you may wanna look at that plan for Calvert Cliffs because um, it, it lays out a very sane, uh, equitable, economically and technologically viable transition for shutting down a nuclear plant. And we, are, we have on the line, uh, uh, well, Linda can talk to you about that. We also have Robert Freeling, who is a, um, an expert in the conversion of the state of California to renewable energy. And this is very, very tangible. I don't know if you know this, but in California, we get substantially more electricity from rooftop solar than we get from the two nuclear plants at Diablo Canyon. So uh, maybe if you've got a minute, Senator, if you want to listen to Linda uh, talk about this transition and maybe Robert, um, uh, it will give you more ammunition to use because this is very tangible. Um, uh, I, I do want to hear it, uh, just a piece of news because Linda and, and Robert, I, I promise I will pass what you tell me along. My constituent and registered Maryland voter, LaFonza Butler, uh, who lives up the street from me, oh, yeah. is, is the next uh, United States Senator from the state of California uh, and is, is flying to California to register there um, and so that she can be appointed um, by the governor to become yeah. the next U.S. Senator. But um, I had a, a tough campaign just a, a year and a half ago, and I remember knocking on her door. And uh, for those of you familiar with Silver Spring, Maryland, which is right next to Tacoma Park, where Jamie Raskin lives, um, and so, you know, it's a small world sometimes. So, but Linda, Robert, I want to hear from you. And, and to the extent that I run into LaFonza La here in Montgomery County, um, I will let her know about these issues that are pending. Well, who knew that California would have a United States Senator from Maryland? <laughs> but, yeah. if, I, if I had known, I would have put my name forward. No? Yeah. <laughs> but know, Linda, go ahead, Linda. Senator, I wanted to tell you just this morning, we had our weekly strategy call about Diablo Canyon. <clears throat> and one of the topics was LaFonza Butler. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And everybody said, do you know her? Nobody knew her, but you know her. <laughs> oh, that's all world. we need. Well, just, a, a, just an introduction that we, we are, we decided this morning, we're going to start, we're going to get in touch with her as soon as she's um, sworn into office. So if you could help us with an introduction of any kind, it would be super helpful to us. Happy to do so, yes. So 100%. let me tell you that Linda, who is very modest, uh, has been working with the Mothers for Peace uh, in the Central California coast to shut Diablo Canyon for uh, 40 or 50 years. And uh, the, the group is there and we, we have laid out in great detail and practical application how to phase out a nuclear plant. And this is something that you will face with Calvert Cliffs. All the, all the T's were crossed. This was two years of negotiation. A magnificent uh, uh, agreement was laid out and we just got screwed by the governor a, a year ago. But nonetheless, the document is intact as is the strategy. So Linda, if you'll tell them, go ahead, please. Oh, <clears throat> somebody put up our webpage. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we're a, a, an all-volunteer group. We've been around since 1973. 
our focus since 73 has been shutting Diablo Canyon down before it was even built. Um, and now we have, we have two important, three important uh, legal battles going on right now. The one that we just filed on yesterday was the California Public Utilities Commission to show that number one, we don't need Diablo Canyon and Robert Freeling can tell us elegantly why we don't need it in order to meet our, um, our climate goals. And number two, um, that we have a very impaired reactor vessel in unit one that's cracked. Um, and also it's, we have a nuclear power plant that sits on at least 13 earthquake faults. So if you have a cracked reactor vessel coupled with earthquakes, it's a recipe for catastrophe. And this, this decision that was made to keep Diablo Canyon open was a purely political decision. It had nothing to do with needing Diablo Canyon. It had everything to do with Gavin Newsom wanting to become president in 2028. So it's not, it's not about the benefit of the people. It's not about preventing blackouts. It's, it's about, well, and then also paying back PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, the owner of the utility, who've been very, very generous um, with Gavin Newsom in his uh, campaign contributions, extraordinarily um, generous. So um, anyway, um, we've got these different, the first one is at the, the Public Utilities Commission. Second one is at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals because the um, uh, PG&E, I'm sorry, the NRC violated its own rules. Uh, it's called the timely renewal rule. And they violated that in granting PG&E an, uh, virtually an automatic relicensing of Diablo Canyon. And so we're challenging that in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then we have an emergency petition before the NRC about this cracked reactor vessel. Unit one is down for refueling right now. And we, our demand is that we don't want that unit to go back up into operation until they check the embrittlement problem. And they have not checked for it since 2002. So we have 21 years of no actual checking on this fragile, high pressure, highly radioactive, a nuclear vessel. So that's what we're doing right now. So the two, the Constellation Energy is probably trying is trying to milk the last few dollars they can out of the two reactors at Calvert Cliffs, which opened in '75 and '77. And we, uh, there are a whole range of technical issues. But if I was living in Maryland, I'd be petrified of two, you know, 45, 50 year old reactors. We're petrified of Diablo and, and they opened in the eighties. So, um, uh, and I, I guarantee you there are all sorts of issues that would be of importance to your office. Uh, Diane Curran, our lawyer on the Diablo Canyon was also the lawyer at Yankee Row uh, when it was forced shut um, in uh, 1991. I, I wouldn't be surprised if she lives in Maryland, actually. But um, lives in Tacoma Park. Oh yeah, so she's your neighbor, Diane Diane Curran. 
Uh, but you you may want to. I would highly recommend that you look into the technical issues at the at Calvert Cliffs. No reactor that opened in the 1970s should still be operating, for God's sakes. And um, as you know, an earthquake damaged North Anna, Virginia, which is not all that far from you. And uh, you know nobody expected yeah. earthquakes to damage a reactor in Virginia, but they did. So no, you're exactly right. So if you're if you're game, we will flood you with the expertise that you may need to deal with because the all across the country, the utility owners are conspiring to keep these old, old, old reactors still online. We even have a situation in Michigan where they shut the plant and now they're going to get federal money to reopen it. It's terrifying. Um, and so and Calvert Cliffs is as bad as they get as they yep. get. <clears throat> yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, I'm not and, sure, and, very quickly, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term embrittlement, but uh, I guarantee you it's a factor at uh, at Calvert Cliffs, and we'll we'll let you know about it as soon as we can. Absolutely. No, thank you for that. I appreciate yes, it. Yes, Tatanka, and I, I want to, Robert Freeling, I'm, I'm happy to have you with us. I don't know if you've done any work on any other reactors in terms of the ability of renewables to displace them. But um, uh, Robert, have you ever looked at the Calvert Cliffs reactors? No, I haven't. I, my main focus has been in California. Okay. Well, we can certainly, uh, uh, Senator, provide you with the data that you would need to make the case that renewables can displace uh, nuclear as quickly as, you know, the nuclear plants are at the point now where they're actually getting in the way of renewables. Yeah. It's not, it's not this whole, just this whole hype. They're taking up grid space. Uh, we had an instance in in uh, Finland. They just brought out a nuclear plant in Finland after 15 years of construction. And the first thing that happened was, I mean, within months, there was a, a massive uh, flood of hydropower and solar. And it, it forced them to virtually shut the nuclear plant to make space on the grid for the cheaper wind and solar. And we're at that place all over the world now. Uh, Tatanka, did you want to say a word to the senator? I, yeah, I, I, we don't have to go into this now, but the very first thing that was taken on in Oliver Stone's disastrous movie that Harvey did a great review of, Nuclear Now, where uh, someone who's a friend of mine kind of conspired with him to to give the, quote, you know, technical point of view. He The first thing that out of his mouth is, unfortunately, when people hear nuclear power, they think about nuclear weapons. Oh, and there's no connection. That That's the first place they wanted to go. Then they, of course, went in other uh, uh, distracting places. But it is ver rarely mentioned that the whole reason for nuclear power to exist in the first place is for fissile material. And we still have a very active uh, nuclear program on Earth and in space. And so I just want to make that point. It doesn't really exist for any other reason. You can't justify it in safety. You can't justify it economically. It's unjustifiable. Thank you. Okay, Senator. I know uh, Mike Hurst, did you want to intervene, uh, Senator? And um, is there anyone else that want to say something before we go start to, with Diablo Canyon? Well, I, I have something to say about the European nuclear issue. Please, go ahead. Yeah, because uh, you asked about placing nuclear power, but the other issue that was brought up, interestingly, was the carbon 
burden and that it's not really carbon free in the way people think. And part of that is because it's inflexible. It absolutely goes flat out at whatever megawatt rating it's put at and can hardly vary from hour to hour. So you cannot reliably run any power grid off of nuclear power. In France, which is usually the, the poster child of nuclear power, in order to balance their grid, they have a huge amount of nuclear. They have to import and export power during different hours of the day in order to keep their grid in balance. And as a result, they're importing huge amounts of coal power from Germany for which Germany gets blamed. Germany's shutting down its nuclear plants, has surplus energy because of it's 50% renewable. So their coal power is not really for them as much as it is for their neighbors and especially France. So that's right. a huge carbon burden of nuclear power. Ironically, France, which has 56 reactors, is importing energy from Germany, which now has zero reactors. Germany, yeah. as you know, is post-nuclear. Right. And they, they do have a plan in Germany as well to um, uh, shut all their coal plants by 2030. So uh, this is the kind of modeling that you can do in Maryland that will make all the difference. Because, you know, the, the, to give you a, a, a contrast, in, in California, the, there are 1,500 workers at the power plant at Diablo Canyon. There are 70,000, 70,000 workers installing solar panels in California. And that, that's where the jobs are. The, right. big, the big Rubicon that has to be crossed is unionization of the solar industry. Once we get there, uh, the whole picture changes. So yeah. uh, anyway, I know we're, we're keeping you. Um, we have two quick hands here and then we'll let you go. Uh, of course, Mike, uh, happy to uh, make time. Oh, all right, uh, Wendy, really quickly, please. And Connie. Wendy. Okay. There we go. Sorry, I lost my co-host okay. when I um, lost part of the call. And I apologize if I missed some of this. I was dropped for a second. Um, so I apologize if, if any of this was addressed. And not to diverge far from the um the nuclear issue, but um it's actually related. I have, I have two quick, quick things. One, I don't know, Senator, and thank you so much for everything you're doing and everything you're saying and for being with us. I don't know if you missed the part of the call when we were um, discussing Julian Assange and trying to get as much support behind him as possible. Um, Vinny Stefano is on the call. He's um, the organizing director of Assange Defense and hopefully maybe can get on board of that train because it's really important. Um, coming back around to the energy issue, um, hemp, uh, we can get diesel, we can make batteries, graphene, um, building supplies, which actually um, are carbon negative. When you make buildings out of hempcrete, then um, it actually um, absorbs carbon from the atmosphere. Um, it's carbon remediating for the soil and even cleans up toxicity sites. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on hemp or um, perhaps uh, would be open to looking more into it because it could be such an amazing cash crop that our country was basically founded on. And just because of the fossil fuel industry, um, we did away with that and we could really um, do great with, with hemp. So thank you so much, appreciate it a lot. Yeah, no, 100% supportive of um, exploration of the use of hemp in a lot of different uh, ways. It's just, you know, it's, it's a magic plant, as you know. Um, I don't mean that euphemistically, um, and and uh, and we need to um, make sure that we allow. And I know the federal government has passed legislation, as have we at the state level, um, to make sure that um, hemp can be exploited, including in some of the ways that you describe, Wendy. So thank you. 
Thank you for that, Wendy. Uh, Connie, did you want to say something, Connie Klein? Um, just real quick, again, I want to move to Maryland. I think you should run for president. Um, regarding the, the gun legislation that was passed and the injunction, um, it is, is, is the axis of evil, as I call them, um, appealing that ruling? Yeah, so um, so really good question, Connie. So it's just a preliminary ruling. It's uh, it's not even a decision. It's just kind of a preliminary order that sets the table of what what the law will be while it litigates. And so I'd say about 90, 95% of it goes into effect. And just to be clear, Maryland is not the only state that has passed sensitive places legislation. A number of other states have done so. Um, and in fact, I was in touch with the folks at Everytown, uh, which is the parent organization, as you know, of Moms Demand Action. And they said, you know, when New, New Jersey passed this, there was an injunction against the whole thing. It hasn't even gone into effect there while that litigates. So I think what you'll see is this will litigate out. We're in front of a judge appointed by uh, Barack Obama, someone I think who, you know, the judge is someone who is thought, well thought of and well respected, not a Trump judge. Um, and I imagine both sides, when a final ruling is issued, if 100% of the bill is not upheld, um, both sides will appeal their portion of it. In other words, if most of it's upheld, but a little piece is not, um, our Attorney General, Anthony Brown, strong progressive, strong on gun uh, safety issues, will appeal that portion. And then the NRA folks will appeal the other portion. Uh, we're in the Fourth Circuit here in Maryland, um, traditionally a, a moderate to conservative circuit. Uh, so we shall see, um, and, and perhaps eventually uh, all these gun bills from across the country, because different circuits will come to different rulings, will eventually go back to the Supreme Court, uh, which is, you know, a little bit scary, but they are the ones who said, even in a very right-wing conservative opinion that I happen to disagree with, that sensitive places must be protected. Uh, so I think we're on firm constitutional ground here in Maryland. Uh, and Connie, good, thank you good, for the good. vote of confidence. I am not running for president, of course, but but maybe next time you talk to Jamie Raskin. <laughs> well, we were we were hoping he'd run for senator, but I guess he doesn't want to do that either at this point in time. So let, let, let's see. we have 12 more minutes. I do want to, Jeff, uh, uh, Senator, explain to you very quickly with Linda Seeley and Robert Freeling uh, the implications of uh, the uh, embrittlement issue. Okay. Because two reactors as old as yours are going to be embrittled. And that's a big fight here in California which Linda is helping to lead. Very quickly, now I'll turn it over to Linda. Every reactor has a pressure vessel. And inside the pressure vessel is where the nuclear reaction occurs. And the pressure vessel over time, because of the radiation, the heat, and the, and the pressure, the, uh, the, the metals uh, have a chemical change and they lose their resilience. And if the metals in the reactor pressure vessel have lost their resilience and are embrittled, uh, they will shatter if they're, God forbid, if there's an accident and water is poured in. And that means that you're driving a car where if you hit the brakes, the car explodes. And, it, and with, with heat, with radiation, with steam, and with hydrogen. And uh, we, I, I can guarantee you 100% that the pressure vessels at both reactors at Calvary Cliffs are very badly embrittled. So Linda, can you tell 
of the senator where we're at in the courts. This is now in the federal court on the embrittlement issue where we're fighting the NRC to shut the Abu Canyon, and you will have the same issue in Maryland. Uh, uh, please, Linda. <clears throat> Just in the past about five minutes, uh, Diane Curran, our attorney, called me and um, said that the NRC has just rejected our uh, petition to um, have a, to for an immediate shutdown. I mean, it's already shut down to stop it from going back up online. Um, they're going to refer it to the staff to for a 2.206 petition, which is a complicated process. It doesn't mean we're at the end of the road. It means we have a lot harder work to do again. The NRC is a completely captive agency, 100%. Their job is to regulate nuclear power while they're promoting it. And that is puts them in a bind that is an impossible bind to be in. Um, because they want to have a job and they believe that nuclear power is fine and dandy. Um, <clears throat> so we're at conflicting ends of a spectrum of um, reality. Um, and it, it's very interesting. It's kind of reflective of the way that our world is right now in a way. Um, right. Anyway. The problem with the unit one reactor vessel, it what happens is if you pour and the unit one reactor vessel went into a scram yesterday morning, actually, while they were taking it offline for refueling. And it had to in it um it was a reportable event to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's a very problematic thing. Um you in at Calvert Cliffs, do you have an do you have a group? They're a citizens group who challenge Calvert Cliffs. So yeah, I mean, um, I I think the answer is yes. So I I'm Maryland's a relatively small state, but I, you know, physically I'm relatively distant from Calvert Cliffs, so I'm not dealing with that issue on a regular basis. The push and the pull is I think the answer is yes. They there are local residents who are very yeah. concerned about. Um, but we also, I'm sorry, Linda, go ahead. Beyond nuclear. And you've got uh, Kevin Camps that, mm -hmm. that I know of. Um, yeah. yeah. So they're all over it. I'm sure of that, Harvey. Well, let me just say that in many ways, uh, Tacoma Park is is in many ways the heart or at least the mind of the national anti-nuclear movement. You've got Paul and Linda Gunter, whose mm -hmm. house have been at it to, in Tacoma Park. I think Kevin lives there. And you got Diane Kern. And we would be thrilled to set a meeting up with you. Uh, and you'll be light years ahead of everybody else in terms of Calvert Cliffs. But, and they will tell you stuff about Calvert Cliffs that'll make your hair stand on end. So no, that's wonderful. Yeah, Tacoma Park right around the corner from me. And uh, we could do that meeting in person. So yes, we'll that, that, we'll that would be great. We'll have it in Raskin's living room. Yeah. <laughs> we could do that. Yes. And Robert, oh, can you explain? I know California is not exactly Maryland. Can you give him the parameters of what it would take to show? that Maryland could be 100% renewable and maybe Ron Leonard jump in as well? Um, well, I can certainly talk about the experience of California and hope that that can be a model for what you do there. Um, California has an overall arching climate plan, uh, which was first set in place in 2008. 
And uh, between 2008 and 2020, in the electricity sector, we reduced greenhouse gas emissions in half from 120 million tons a year to 60 million tons. Now, under the most optimistic assumptions about Diablo Canyon, meaning assuming it's carbon free, which we know it's not, just giving them that argument, it avoids between six and seven million tons of emissions per year. And so the reduction in greenhouse gases from the constellation of state clean energy policies reduced emissions over a decade by a factor of 10, larger than the most optimistic assumption about Diablo Canyon. Now it turns out in 2012, we had another nuclear power plant, San Onofre in Southern California that broke uh, catastrophically. Um, there were many new parts, dozens of them started springing slightly, quote unquote, slightly radioactive fluid leaks <laughs> onto the floor and uh, it was shut down. And so you can see a little blip that year in the long downhill slope of the state's greenhouse emissions. But it was just like about a one year little tiny up blip. And then it just accelerated even faster after it was shot. And that's because we have about half a dozen policies. The first is to phase out coal, which we are now down to about two to 3% coal in the state. The second is the renewable standard that's applicable to all retail sellers of electricity. The third is rooftop solar which we've had special support programs for, including that metering, which is now unfortunately being attacked by this governor as he's defending um, nuclear power. Uh, the fourth is energy efficiency. Uh, the fifth is community energy programs called community choice aggregations, which are trying to decarbonize their electricity quickly. And the sixth is a price on greenhouse emissions. All these are pushing rapidly uh, a decline in greenhouse emissions. And when the pro-nuclear people make their case, they spread a cloud of misinformation, which wildly inflates the benefit of the nuclear, but even more hazardous, they basically slander the state's clean energy programs and say they're not working or building stuff fast enough. Uh, one of the main contributions I made, I was part of this proceeding this year uh, to reconsider the extension to Diablo Canyon. And I showed that the constellation of our clean energy policies is replacing Diablo Canyon about every one and a quarter years. You don't need any vast program, special replacement. Our pro policies in, their, in the constellation of them are so much larger than the joint proposal made by PG&E with the other parties that that's been done years ago already. And PG&E argued itself that the constellation of these programs would by 2025 make Diablo Canyon obsolete. And one of the reasons it's obsolete is because it's inflexible and therefore it pushes solar and wind out of the way and causes it to be curtailed. PG&E estimated that five to 15% of the energy annually generated by Diablo Canyon would be offset by curtailed solar and wind that it is causing. And I would estimate that that's after 2025. I'm estimating today it's already, based on the modeling, about 10% of Diablo Canyon is erased by curtailed solar and wind that would be usable if Diablo Canyon got out of the way. And the other thing that can be done with Diablo Canyon, it has these huge transmission lines that go to the sea. Uh, if it gets off of those wires, we can develop offshore wind using existing wires with no new investment in transmission. So there are many things that can be done, but uh, we don't need them because 
of the huge growth. And this growth is actually not just going on in California. It's going on in the United States. 80 to 90% of new generation in California is renewable. A similar percentage is in the United States. And as a matter of fact, a similar percentage is all over the world. So when RV asks me, do I know about replacing nuclear around the world or in other states, the whole world is going through this revolution of converting to renewable energy. And, and we, there's never been a time to be more optimistic that we have the tools we need to address global warming. Do we need to do more? Of course we do, uh, but there's no reason to get desperate and panicky. What we need is a systematic policy of building more batteries, not destroying the policies we've already put in place because they're working. If we didn't get, if the governor didn't get in the way, we would have an almost completely decarbonized grid by the end of this decade. So there you go. Um, uh, and we, uh, let's just say that we have people who could present you in a pretty short period of time, a very comprehensive uh, total plan for going 100% renewable in Maryland, if you don't have it already, and for phasing out those two reactors. But I guarantee you, if you get with Diane Kern we, and Arnie Gunderson, the engineer, and others, uh, we can uh, present you with a, a real t a, a way to shut the uh, Calvert Cliffs. Uh, I mean, 50 years old is just over, well, 45 is just over the top. Um, uh, Mike Hirsch, you wanted to say, th uh, jump in here, Mike. Yeah, thanks so much, Harvey. And uh, Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I invited you here to inform us with uh, about all the things you are doing. And I'm just so pleased that you were able to sit patiently and learn from this advanced graduate level uh, <laughs> seminar that we put on in terms of how to get off nukes, get off uh, carbon and get on, on to 21st century power. And, um, you know, I'm just so grateful that you were able to take the time to, to listen to the, that part of the, uh, the meeting. A lot of our guests are very generous with their time, but they leave after they present. And I wanna thank you for sticking around. I know that this was kind of um, information at the pace of a fire hose. So I don't, I don't know if you were able to keep up with it. I sure was not able to keep up with all of it, but I pledge that I will continue to, um, to support this and to uh, help you connect with the people on this Zoom and then the people that we both know who are busy at work in Tacoma Park on all these issues. So maybe what we Absolutely. could do is have a, yeah, maybe we could have a briefing or a presentation for your colleagues um, in Annapolis, and maybe we can invite the governor and figure out how to put together a task force to implement these great things that people have come up with in California, just because their governor did, decided to not go along with it and broke his word. Uh, our governor is a lot more trustworthy and a lot more um, uh, cooperative, shall we say, to put it uh, kindly. And uh, I believe that if we present these plans, um, from the West Coast over here. I mean, we sent them a senator. They can send us some plans. <laughs> that's uh, right. Yeah. So, so it'll be a trade. <laughs> that's 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 right. Like the Babe Ruth trade, kind of. But um, mm -hmm. Jeff, if you want to say a few closing remarks, uh, we'd really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mike, and, and thank you, Harvey, and thank you to everyone again on this call. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, like Mike said, I'm a listener first. Um, and proud to, to be so. Sometimes that puts me a little out of step with my colleagues in politics, um, but I find that you're most effective when you're listening to others and hearing what they have to say and learning 
from the expertise that they bring. Um, let me make this, uh, let me close it. I, I hope this doesn't make it terribly awkward, um, uh, but we've referenced my friend, uh, Jamie Raskin a couple of times, you know, who's on CNN frequently and has, um, and has a strong uh, small donor program. Uh, here in the legislature, especially in a small state like Maryland, um, we don't get a lot of opportunities to, to talk directly with national audiences. Um, and so if it's okay with you, Mike, and please tell me if it's not, I'm just gonna put my act blue in the, in the chat. Uh, in Maryland, um, I've been fighting for many, many years uh, for, for public financing of campaigns. Um, and we do have it here at the county level, but not at the state level. Um, and so as I, as I fight for public financing, uh, unfortunately, I still have to work in the old system. So if anyone online here today is amenable to a small donation, um, sometimes it's like my bar mitzvah, lots of people give me $18 donations, $36 <laughs> donations. Um, so please feel free, but of course, no obligation. And, and then let me thank Mike one more time. As I mentioned at the beginning, Mike is a progressive progressive. Um, he believes in the ideals that you've heard here today and he believes in engaging in the democratic processes necessary to put those ideals into action. And he's been doing it for a long time. Um, and um, through a lot of disappointments have, has persevered. And that perseverance has resulted in a lot of big wins, especially lately. So thank you everyone for having me. Thank you, uh, thank you. Thank you. you and I will, I will close by saying that I knew ja Jamie's father <laughs> and he was also a great guy. And yes- a and beautiful human being. And we will also put you in touch with Ray McClendon and uh, Andrea Miller, whose presentations you didn't see, but are the great gurus of uh, grassroots organizing. And that, that'll be a big plus for you as well. Sounds great. Mike, thank, thank you, you so all. much for bringing the Senator. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, we're at the top of the hour. Mike, thanks again for that. Uh, we're at the top of the hour. I'm, I'm, I, I can go for a little while longer. if I We wanna get a full report from Linda and from Robert. As, as promised, if you guys can stay and. Um, Linda, if you want to give us the bad news there. Um, um, Steve, you had a hand. I, I didn't see Vina Colley on, on the call. I hope I didn't diss her. No, she wasn't here. I Maybe she forgot. But okay, that's Connie all right. Klein, I, I, I invited a bunch of people in, and they want to come on later on, so maybe we can get them back. Battle uh, Ohio, the origin of all this nuclear material that's going on. Um, sorry, what did I do there? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> they uh they've got the porcelain's gaseous diffusion plant in for remodeling they're tearing down all the old facility this is where they're producing nuclear fuel from like the 1950s so the cancer rate down there is anywhere between 20 and 35 percent higher than the general population um connie put in something earlier about uh or sent this to me, but these are just some of the small facts and we can go into this. This is like the origin of the whole- This is a, the Southern Ohio Portsmouth. I'm gonna step, by the way, Steve, uh, real quick. I'm gonna have to leave at 420 uh, okay. uh, symbolically. So if you can do that quick, and then we'll go back to Linda and Robert so we can get to California as we promised, but go ahead. Okay, sorry. I didn't no, know no, inject Ohio, but I mean, it, all this stuff about the nuclear plants is being built in Ohio. This is where you're getting your car parts from. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. It's important that we know that. That's That was my main point. Maybe we can get some people from Ohio and tell you what's going on. But it's ridiculous, obviously. But And weirdly enough, Ohio is the um, second largest manufacturer of wind 
turbine components. And the electrical, uh, the first electric power, uh, a windmill, first windmill to generate electricity was built in Cleveland by a guy named Charles Brush, who was every bit as smart and much, much nicer than Thomas Edison. <laughs> anyway, who was also from Ohio, by the way. Anyway, uh, uh, Steve, thanks for that. Maybe we can get Vina and the people from Portsmouth uh, next week. Um, and um, I'll work on that. I'll do. Okay, that. good. Very like good. Um, we did promise uh, Justin uh, real quick, but we promised Linda and Robert uh, some time to really go in deep on California. We still have 33 people with us, for God's sakes. Uh, so go ahead, Justin, then we'll go to Linda and Robert. Sure. And uh, my interest is in what their interest is in as well. So I'll uh, just kind of close off with the previous speaker and say, Small dollar donations were a very featured thing at the American Democracy Summit this week uh, in terms of making more responsive politics uh, and more representative politics, both of BIPOC and uh, other uh, generally disadvantaged groups. Uh, so the okay. uh, second thing in moving forward of more you know, democratizing our economy uh, is a lot of people are wanting to move to EVs. But uh, our grid has some issues in supporting that kind of thing without the right infrastructure. So uh, I was hoping that uh, when Robert talks about California, he'll include uh, the question of rooftop solar and the renewable portfolio standard, as well as maybe uh, employers in uh, putting on solar for their employees. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Linda, go ahead, please. Thank you for that, Justin. Linda and then, and then Robert. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. I I really want to hear what Robert has to say, because hip, uh, Mothers for Peace are no, we're not only working with the, the NRC about the embrittlement issue, but the, the place where we may get more traction is at the CPUC, um, because they're the ones who have to make, ultimately make the decision about whether or not California, number one, needs the energy, and number two, if it's practicable um, and um, prudent to keep an aging nuclear power plant built on 13 earthquake faults with a cracking reactor vessel um, going for another five to 20 years. Um, so. Okay. The, um, what I want to hear from Robert is about this. Like his, I know he's been working with Women's Energy Matters at the PUC to um, prove to whoever it is that needs to be proven to that we don't, not only do we not need it, but it's not practical to keep it. So um, I wonder if Robert, could you help us understand more about that? Sure, absolutely, Linda. Um... Uh, my opinion is that the main reason why the government dragged this settled question out of the closet was that there were two power outages in August 2020. And these outages were, to quantify them, 1,000 megawatts for one hour uh, of demand that was shut off uh, under a condition of stress on a Friday and 500 megawatts for 20 minutes. Both of these were largely caused by errors of the operator of the California grid, the California Independent System Operator, or CAISO. 
is the acronym, which they partly acknowledged, but haven't, haven't fully. The, the governor was very panicked by this, understandably, because 20 years earlier, we had had power outages caused by market manipulation that led to a governor being recalled and removed, ultimately removed from office. So this is a very uh, sort of toxic political thing to have power outages on your watch. But the governor, I think, and the CPUC wildly overreacted. And remember I said one of the outages was 500 megawatts for 20 minutes, the other 1,000 megawatts for an hour. What they ended up ordering at the PUC was accelerated procurement of 11,500 megawatts of new reliable capacity over the next few years between 2022 and 2026. Uh, it, as far as a response to what happened in 2020, which wasn't caused by a lack of power generation, um, it, it was just off the chart absurd. And part of what we demonstrated in the last two filings was the assumptions behind that were almost entirely fictitious or have turned out to be. For example, they assumed that uh, 3,700 megawatts of gas plants were going to uh, be retired at the end of this year. Well, it turned out those under the same pressure, the governor got extended another three years. So that's a third of the slice of the claimed procurement need that they had. Um, they also had used a highly inflated value for what the reserve margin should be. We keep about 7,000 megawatts in reserve. Now compare that to Diablo Canyon, which is just over 2,000 megawatts. We, we have reserves above the highest expected peak demand of about three times Diablo Canyon. And that's on top of emergency reserves, which is another 2000 megawatts of what's called demand response where they can order large industrial customers to uh, turn off their power for an hour or two under a grid emergency uh, and other resources. Now, one of the things I and Eric Viam succeeded last year in getting into the, this legislation that got them to look at this again, was to look at demand response, which is when customers voluntarily reduce demand under conditions of stress and suggested that the state should order procurement of this, set a, a firm standard. And the Energy Commission did order 7,000 megawatts of demand response be built by 2030, which we already have 3,000. So this would add about 4,000 more over the next six or seven years. Um, so that's just an example. Now, what is the actual need for reliability is the question. And the state grid operator did modeling. They ran 2000 scenarios last year on the grid. And they found that the only times that there was not a shortage of, of generation to meet power demand, but a shortage of 6% reserve on top of that was during the hours between about four or five o'clock in the afternoon and seven or eight in the evening on a few days out of the year uh, for maybe up to an hour or two at a time. So for that, you don't need a nuclear plant that is a baseload plant that runs at fixed output 24 hours a day around the clock uh, year round. Uh, and this was something people misunderstood. They thought, oh, a baseload plant, that'll provide us with, with reliability. No, it won't because it's not flexible. You can't increase it at the moment of grid stress when you need it. But what you can do in order to do that is demand response, which is the fire alarm, the last resource that the grid operator goes after when they're running out of resources, and also batteries. And the CAISO 
has set a standard that new utility scale batteries have to last at full power for four hours, which means they can bridge this reliability gap when the sun is going down in the late afternoon, early evening, and demand is still relatively high for a few hours in the evening. That's the reliability gap. And we have built in the last three years, almost 6,000 megawatts of new utility scale batteries, plus a thousand megawatts of customer batteries behind their meters. And we have 3000 megawatts of pump hydro storage. So right now, California has 10,000 megawatts of energy storage available. Now, part of that energy storage is PG&E's pump hydro, 1400 megawatts or 1200 megawatts in the foothills. Uh, that is used as a backup generator for Diablo Canyon. And if Diablo Canyon closes, instead of being a backup generator for Diablo Canyon, it can be a backup for solar and wind power. There's another resource that can be freed up. So getting Diablo Canyon out of the way actually frees up multiple things. I remember I mentioned the offshore wind could use the existing transmission that connects to Diablo Canyon. The solar and wind that's being curtailed is a second thing and freeing up uh, um, uh, energy storage over a thousand megawatts of energy storage is, is a third resource. So the whole thing, the whole system becomes much more flexible, much more able to transition to renewable energy if you get it out of the way. So that's the reliability question. It's quite different from the decarbonization question, which I said, we're already doing it very quickly. And the only thing I have to say about this is sort of repeat what I said before, is that there has been a flurry of propaganda, wildly exaggerating the benefits of Diablo Canyon and underestimating by many orders of magnitude, the, the torrent of clean energy coming online. So I, I did wanna say one thing in response to Harvey. Harvey had asked me a previous time I attended how much solar energy there is now. I, I did look at the latest data about almost a quarter of California's electricity last year over the course of the year came from solar energy, which is pretty remarkable. And about half of the electricity came from renewable energy. Linda, you want to, is there anything more you want to ask to Robert? No, you did a great job of explaining stuff, Robert. Thank you. Okay. Very yeah. good. Thank you. Anybody else? I have a question for Robert. We're going to wrap here at 420, unless people want to, um, um, everybody, I assume at 420 wants to go out and toke up. So um, can, can I say one more thing about reliability in the nuclear? Of course. Plant? Okay, there is a certain rule that is set by the, those who govern the reliability of the electrical grid in North America and the Western United States, which says that in order to assure the grid is reliable under conditions of stress, they're supposed to subtract from the list of power sources, the largest single power plant and the largest single transmission line. And the grid needs to be, they need to show that the grid power still stands. Well, the largest generator is the nuclear plant. Uh, and so this standard basically means for reliability purposes, they have to remove consideration of Diablo Canyon from that list. It actually does not provide reliability that people think. PG&E has to maintain enough reserve generation as it is to back up Diablo Canyon in case it gets lost. Mind boggling. Fantastic. Yeah. Are we gonna go Justin and then Myla? Myla will be the last unless somebody wants to jump in. Go ahead, Justin, then Myra. Sure. Uh, so first thing I wanted to uh, forward what was stated by Ms. Lotus Yi Fong, 
that uh, she wanted to uh, remind us that two honest commissioners, Loretta Lynch and President Carl Wood uh, from the CPUC uh, have been allies as part of the Clean Coalition uh, and uh, Robert Freeling has worked with them uh, as far as the report on those August 2020 power outages. Um, the second thing that I wanted to bring up uh, is that, you know, Robert talked about the inflexibility of the nuclear. One of the things we've had a discussion about in the past is that nuclear actually has to be backed up by hydropower, uh, partly because it can dump too much power on the grid at any given point in time. And so because Diablo is active, that means that that hydropower isn't available for more flexible resources such as solar and wind. And even um, so it, it, uh, it, it's also a more reliable source even than batteries, though we're building a lot of those uh, in the uh, uh, gigawatt range now. Amazing. Thank you for that, uh, Justin. Um, um, uh, did you want to comment on that, Robert, before I go to well, Milan? Um, yes. I mean, there's going to be a lot more energy storage being built. We're building a, probably a couple thousand megawatts of battery storage per year in the last couple of years. And that's going to go on for probably the foreseeable future. So every time you build a couple thousand megawatts of batteries, you're essentially replacing the reliability capacity of Diablo Canyon. So we're doing that also about once every year. Uh, I did now, want to and now on that battery is privately owned, right? A lot of a lot of it's homeowner batteries. Yeah, there's about a thousand megawatts currently that's uh, ho ho homeowners and some businesses, but largely homeowners. That resource is not really used by the grid operator, but could be. So those those could have avoided the power outages back in 2020 if the grid operator had just been set up to use the customer batteries. And in fact, Tesla offered the CPUC and Kaiso. They said, we'll, we'll aggregate all those batteries together and turn them on and off as you need. And so far, they really haven't taken that up in a significant way. Whoa, man. Uh, <laughs> all right, Myla, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, Robert, I have a question about the California Independent System Operator or uh, Kaiso, CalISO. Um, if I recall correctly, when we were working to keep uh, Southern California Edison from restarting San Onofre, I went to a presentation that was either given by uh, Kaiso or um, or they participated in it, and it seemed to me that they were pretty much towing the line of the um, California of the of Southern California Edison. They were. Um, mimicking or echoing a lot of the positions that were held by Edison in terms of, you know, telling us that there would be blackouts if, if we didn't, if we permanently shut um, San Onofre. And I just wonder if you can tell us, uh, who. I, I, it's not clear to me who are these um, appointees by the governor or who, how, how do they come, what kind of power do they have other than operating the system? Yes, that's a and, good question. So yeah. the way the way it was set up, um, and this was one and actually in a court case that Loretta and others were involved in, because uh, she was involved with the CPUC back then. She's not a member of the commission anymore, but um, they, they actually to sue the federal government to make sure California had some control. Uh, it's a California nonprofit corporation and the, the board members are appointed by the governor and confirmed by the Senate, I believe. 
they, um, however, have been making big efforts to try and what's called regionalize the grid operator, which would completely take the power grid out of California's control. And we could lose control over all, not only the day-to-day -day operation, but also the rules and regulations that set up our renewable standard, how rooftop solar is credited, so forth. One of the most dangerous things we've had, and I've worked with Loretta in the past to try and fight these efforts to take away control of our grid. And this is, was brought up this past year and uh, may come up again next year. So something to watch. Listen, we're gonna have to have you back, both you and Linda. What an incredible session this is. We still have more than 30 people with us, but we're going to have to go. Um, um, thank you, everybody. Robert, thank you, Linda. Thank you. And we will definitely work. Uh, Tatanka, great to have you here the whole time. Myla, Steve, thank you, Mike, uh, Hirsch, Wendy. We'll be back again next week. Another incredible session. I mean, this has been two and a half hours and we, all this stuff. So thank you so much, you guys. I'm actually going to see my grandchildren, so yes. uh, <laughs> I'll say it. I'm, I'm actually not going to toke up, but you guys, are you young people, knock yourself out. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. No, no nukes. No nukes. Se puede.